0: Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 69. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at acton Boxford Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Amy Welch. Amy currently teaches biology, honors biology, and IB biology at Sonora High School in La Habra, California. Throughout her career, Amy has presented at several conferences, both in Orange County and at National Association of Biology Teachers, on tools to help access NGSS practices through student communication and authentic research. In 2018, Amy was presented with the Outstanding Biology Teacher Award for the State of California from NABT. In 2011, Amy was honored as the Orange County Teacher of the Year. She is also currently teaching at Cal State Fullerton in the Secondary Education Program. This semester, she is teaching the Science Methods course for Secondary Science Teacher Candidates. Amy earned her bachelor's degree in biology from UCLA and a master's in biology from Washington University in St. Louis. Welcome, Amy.
1: Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, last time we talked, we were in, uh, I think, like a, a Lyft or an Uber. Uh, I believe so,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: coming back from dinner in San Diego. So, uh, yeah, I yeah. you have, a uh, don't know, you have strange taste in people if we were hanging out together. Yeah, um, it was after. a fun
1: crew. It was fun to hang out with all of you.
0: <laughs> yeah, you guys were like hosts down there.
1: Yeah, San Diego is a, a beautiful place. Lots of great things to do.
0: Yeah, I feel like, uh, I don't remember, like well, the first time we were out, we were sitting out behind... Uh, the hotel, and I just wandered out. I was like, Where's everybody? And everyone's like, We're out by the boats, and um, it was you and That's it was right. Ron, and yeah, and Lion, by fire <laughs> and, yeah, we were out by a fire pit hanging out. Um, and then the next, then, I don't know, it was like two or three days later, we all went out to dinner together. Um, uh, and John Darko and I showed up, and there was this giant table full of people, uh, hanging out and having dinner. So, yeah, that was a I don't know that there's going to be much better conference tables than we ever had than the one we had there. I know.
1: That's my favorite part of these conferences is just the conversations that we can all have and how everyone just has so many commonalities that we can all talk about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to probably be, be indoors at next year at Chicago.
1: I believe so. Yeah. That would make sense.
0: <laughs> yeah. Lots of, lots of indoor events as opposed yeah. to uh, sitting out on the water. Yeah, and I, I do know that um, the proposals are in and the proposals are being looked over for next year right now. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I am too. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the question I like to start, everyone. And, and as I was lamenting, you know, as we hung out a couple of times out in San Diego, but I don't know uh, your history and how you got in the classroom. So this is going to be exciting for me. <laughs> um, so what led you into the classroom? How did you become a science teacher?
1: Um, I think I'm one of those people that always knew I wanted to teach um even from as a little kid like if you were to ask my mom she always comments to this day about how i think for christmas even one year santa brought me a a chalkboard so i could play school all the time and she she said i just always loved to teach but in my mind as i grew older especially through high school um i knew i wanted to teach elementary school and um, so when I went to college in my undergraduate degree, I I went in as an undeclared major, and I was I was what you would call just that lost kid. I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, and I was actually really interested in music. So I'm a clarinet player and piano player, and I had did a lot. I did a lot with music um, through high school, and so I was kind of toying around with either the art side of a major or the science side because I took AP Bio and Chemistry and all that in high school, and I, I love science. And it wasn't until my roommate, my first year in college, she was a biology major and she came back with all this homework and she was studying. And I can't remember what she was studying. I think it was something with genetics or something. And I was sitting down and helping her. And I realized at that moment that I really missed biology. And so I signed up for a class and it was life science one, like the introductory life science course at UCLA. And it was with Professor Phelan, Dr. J. Phelan. And he was probably the teacher that changed the trajectory of both my major and also my career, because he was teaching, the class was on evolutionary biology, but his, the way he taught was just completely different than anything I had experienced before. Instead of just being a traditional lecture, and it was very much traditional lecture-based course, he had a slide show with literally like the little, you know, old school slides, Mm -hmm. and so this was at the time of transparencies and all that, and he um, put a picture up of Julia Roberts, and then he asked us, well, what do you know about her and her dating life? And at the time, I think she was dating, I don't know, Ben Ben Bratt, Benjamin Bratt, mm-hmm. I don't even remember his name. And we turned to the people near us, and we could tell them everything about Julia Roberts. But then he would show us a, a picture of some political figure from another state, and we knew nothing about it. And he was talking about gossip, and he was saying how through our evolution, you know, gossip used to have a purpose. And he wrote this book that he that we read for the course. And it was just about kind of taming your primal instincts and through evolution, how, you know, when we're, we have this sense of gossip, and it's exciting for us, but it's really not useful anymore. But in our ancestral past, it was. You know, you had to know where the food was. You had to know they needed different clans and everything. And I guess you could say, and I've never really thought about this until this moment, I guess you could say that that was my first introduction to phenomena-based teaching. <laughs> and he did that with everything. I mean, he would have the weirdest pictures. And so on one screen, he'd have a really crazy, weird picture. And then on the other screen, he had his overhead transparency and he would be, um, you know, teaching traditional biology. And I had never learned science or biology that way before. And I'm like, this is science. This is awesome. And so I just signed up after that for another class. And then pretty soon I was in, you know, organic chemistry and all the others. And I was hooked. And I knew that science was the major I wanted to do. But I still had that elementary school teaching in the back of my mind. And so I still signed up to take um, elementary teaching classes. And I realized that that wasn't for me. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm just not meant to be a teacher. So after college, um, you know, I participated in some internships, like some, I worked for Heal the Bay, um, and it was an environmental nonprofit in, um, Santa Monica and some other things. I was all over the place. I was doing, um, like marketing. I mean, I had no direction again, that lost kid. And, Um, I ended up moving back home here in Orange County, and I kept applying for jobs that had something to do with education. So at that moment, I thought, well, I love biology, and maybe I could teach high school. Never in a million years did I ever think I would be a high school teacher, (laughs) a high school science teacher on top of that. And I kept reflecting back to Dr. Phelan's class, because not only, like I said, was he so um, instrumental in my passion for science and biology, but also just the way he taught. And I keep thinking about that um, through my teaching practice, you know,
0: today. So what was that first application to a a school like? What was the spark to say, yeah, this is, this is time. I've been doing these outreach things. Was there a moment or was it a, like, I just need to work and make money kind of thing? Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I needed to work and make money, but um, <laughs> I think I had so many random jobs at the time. I was selling, I was in retail. I was trying to figure things out. And I think I had to apply for, I can't even remember the name of it or what it was, but it was some sort of tutoring program to be, I, I don't even remember what the position was. <laughs> and um, I remember not getting the job or even getting called in for an interview, but I just realized that I kept applying for these things that had to do with education. And I knew that that was my passion. And I, I truly feel that it's my, it's my calling. I love teaching. I love helping students. I love, help, love helping kids. And um, so I can't really pinpoint it to one thing that was mm-hmm. like, Yes, I have to apply. I mean, I needed to make a decision. I needed to <laughs> I needed to get a job. But um I always knew. I think in the back of my mind, I always knew eventually maybe I would become a teacher. I think that was always kind of in my mind and then I just had a, you know, conversation with myself, like, this is my passion, why not just do it now? This is what I meant to do, this is what I want to do. So I went for it.
0: It's, it's interesting to hear the, the sort of reluctant uh, switch over. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's, and it's always, I think um, for me, when I think back, you know, I, I applied for a job where really looking back at it now, I look to think to myself, gosh, why, why did I think I should apply for these teaching jobs? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, In reality, had I had a little bit more self-awareness, I might have been cautious, but um, maybe being immature that i was and not really having a sense of what i was getting myself involved in was a huge advantage for me mm-hmm. um, but it sounds like you had a little bit more life experience and you were a little bit more cautious and it probably slowed you down a little bit of getting to that point it uh, did
1: but it like i i started i was in a teaching credential i mean this was all it sounds like it was a long time but it really wasn't that long i was in the credential program maybe a year after mm-hmm. college And also, I forgot to mention, in that year of trying to just explore, I also decided to go study abroad for a summer in Spain. And just, I think, for fun and just to get another, you know, experience, Mm -hmm. life experience. And again, when I was there, I just kept loving the teaching aspect of everything. So I think that helped as well, you know, making that decision. Again, I always knew. I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. And it was just trying to figure out exactly what type of teacher and when to do it?
0: Cool. And obviously, you've had a very good run as you've been here, as you, we talked about in the in the beginning. You know, uh, accolades and presentations, and you know, going to conferences and that sort of thing. So uh, clearly, a, a a good choice that you're happy. Yes, it was you're happy a, with. a
1: wonderful choice. I'm very happy. It's the best career.
0: Yeah. And so I, um, as I had mentioned uh, to you before we started recording, I always like it when I get to get a California teacher on because for me, California teachers are like teachers from the future for me when it comes <laughs> to NGSS. Like, I feel like you are two or three years ahead at least uh, from where I am because I feel like California teachers were grappling and adopting NGSS language and concepts. Well, before I had even really thought about it, Um, I talked to Antonio Gamboa, who teaches close to LA as well. And he was explaining NGSS in a very positive light. And it was like the first teacher I ever talked to that made NGSS seem like it was a good thing, Uh um, was talking to a California teacher that made me (laughs) realize that, oh, I shouldn't just dismiss this as like another wave of random standards or whatever. Yeah. So so I'm curious about your current feelings about NGSS standards and and how those feelings have maybe evolved over the last few years of your teaching.
1: I remember when I first saw the standards, I was completely overwhelmed by them. I was overwhelmed by all the color the three colors. I was overwhelmed <laughs> by all the boxes and the Common Core standards, you know, towards the bottom and um how this all links together. And my first glance at them, um I remember looking through them and thinking, wow, there's so much less to teach. It seems like so much content has been taken out. And the California state standards at the time were all content, very heavy content. And the beginning of each statement for the standards was students know, you know, the reactants of photosynthesis. Students know Mm -hmm. how, you know, mRNA will translate into a protein. So every single statement started with students know. And that's all I had known in my career was teaching to those standards. So again, when I looked at these NGSS standards, I I didn't understand how everything connected, the three-dimensional aspect of it. Once I started to really investigate them more and got trained on them more and saw them um, in a different light, I noticed that they are so much deeper than all of the content that I had previously taught. Um, I absolutely love the standards. It has revolutionized my teaching. I just think it's good teaching. And it forces us to teach in a way where instead of students knowing everything, they can now do. And I love that the performance tasks and the performance expectations are now assessing students not on just what they know, but what they can do. Um, our students right now in California, um, we're in our first official year um, of the California science test where they're assessing mm-hmm. NGSS. And we're in fact, we're going through that testing right now, these next couple weeks, And so it'll be very interesting to to see the results of that and to also learn more about the test. The depth of student understanding is increased so much with these standards. And it's really because of the tasks that the students are supposed to do. Modeling, um, writing evidence-based claims, creating, um, planning their own investigations, analyzing data, which again is just good science teaching. Mm -hmm. You know, our students should be doing that. But now they're actually it's a high stakes test, and they're but which doesn't matter. You know, in terms of my mind, that's what matters is the student understanding. But I love that now, that's what's actually being assessed is their ability to um, do science. That's a very phenomena driven model. Kind of going back to what I was saying earlier and how I got into biology teaching that aspect with that one professor and how he always had that phenomena and how it made you think differently. Um, I try to do that all the time as well. I really like the three-dimensional aspect of it because there's now this transferability of skills uh, between you know biology and chemistry and physics. Instead of it just being Mm. biology, chemistry, physics, now it's just science and how we work together in our department to make sure that we have um, a common language that we use for writing you know claim, evidence, reasoning, explanations, or we have a common way to assess inquiry-based lab investigations or We have um, a common way to analyze and assess models that the students are doing so that when they go through those classes, they know what a model, a scientific model is. They know how there's limitations to models. They um, understand that all claims must be backed by evidence. And um, before these standards, I don't think we had those conversations as much within our department. And so... It's just so much more, they lend themselves, the standards lend the classroom to be much more student-centered, where the students are asking the questions instead of the teachers delivering the information and having them just know, like the old California content standards <laughs> they did.
0: Yeah, that's funny, because the, the the exact conversations that you're talking about, about you first look at them and it's, you know, oh, they cut out all of this stuff. Yeah. That was the that was the conversation I was literally having, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Just to give a contrast, where Massachusetts is, we technically adopted very NGSS-like standards about two years ago. I want to say it was um, that we adopted them, and they're in the process of s- switching over their assessments. So okay. this year, and our our assessments are very similar to what you were describing. The old California was that our it was a series of content pieces that students had to know. And it was all content um, questions on our assessment. And this year is a bridge year where it is called overlapping standards. And by that, they mean overlapping content standards. So they're going to have a content-based test, but they're actually scaling back the content a little bit to be similar to the DCIs that will be assessed next year. Okay. And that starting next year, we're supposed to have a... And they haven't really officially told us what it's going to be or what it's going to look like, but it's supposed to be the first... NGSS like assessment of the science standards and we do not have cross-cutting concepts but we do have science practices. Uh, are
1: they the same science and engineering practices
0: that are sort, in the standards? Sort of. Um so on paper yes, uh but when you go and talk to them they're actually bundling them into some clusters uh but more or less they're they're basically the same. But there's still a black box of what this assessment is going to look like. I think from where we are right now, when we look at it and say, okay, so we know it's going to be on a computer. And we know Mm -hmm. that the practices are going to formally be assessed and we know that there's going to be, you know, some slightly different type of questions like some drag and drop and some multiple right answer and some things like that. But in terms of what the, what the actual assessment looks like, I think that's probably where the greatest amount of sort of trepidation comes from teachers who teach uh, vulnerable populations, those who need to pass this test to get a diploma. Um, I think that's where the greatest anxiety is.
1: No, I agree. And I think assessment is, well, for us right now, that's the hardest aspect. Um, In our school right now, they're emphasizing common formative assessments, which is a great practice. We should have Mm -hmm. common formative assessments. It's just hard for us in the science department right now to know exactly what that looks like. Because even though, like you said, we're in the future in California in terms of NGSS, we still don't have, I mean, there's a lot of materials starting to be made. In fact, we're going through materials adoption right now. And trying to you know assess using rubrics the different textbooks and materials that are available for students but we still don't know exactly how to assess these these skills and so we're creating them from scratch and we're trying to come up with ways to authentically assess our students and it's been a challenge it's been a fun challenge but it's definitely been a challenge to do that
0: yeah and that that sort of brings me to the, the the next idea which I'm sure you're in the middle of grappling with so um yeah. so to to demystify for people who are not necessarily all in NGSS land I'm going to I'm going to use these acronyms as we move forward because I think they're common to you and me but maybe not to everybody. So when okay. I ever say uh, DCIs, you know, disciplinary core ideas, those are like our content standards like the stuff you have to know and then the cross-cutting concepts i don't know if the best way to describe them but those are like how would you describe cross-cutting concepts
1: you know i um recently because i'm teaching this to the teaching candidates at the university now and i tell them the dcis the disciplinary core ideas are what scientists know i say the ccc's Mm -hmm. cross-cutting concepts are how scientists think Mm -hmm. and the sep science and engineering practices are what scientists do
0: okay That's a great, great way of describing it.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: So when you are doing something and then the other phrase that I'll use is performance expectations and a performance expectation and correct me if I'm wrong, but a performance expectation is sort of a learning standard that you would present for the curriculum that you're working for, either giving it to your student or just for your own understanding that that incorporates a disciplinary core idea, a cross-cutting concept, and a science and engineering practice. Is that Yeah, that's fair? correct.
1: So within the every performance expectation, you should be able to see all three of those aspects, which is what makes the standard three-dimensional. So there's the content, how they think, for example, cause and effect, scale and proportion, and then they're going to create a model or plan an investigation or analyze data, etc.
0: So when, what happens when you have a, a student, and this is a, this is something that I'm starting to wonder about um, as I've been rolling out NGSS stuff with my students, how do you parse out the assessments when you have a kid who does really well on, maybe they they clearly understand the content. Like if I was just a quiz them on the content, old school, they would be able to tell me back the information, but they're not really great at the... the the practice component Mm of it and like the practice is almost getting in the way of their ability to communicate what their understanding is because they they're just not very good at that component how do you end up assessing a kid who's nailing one part uh but struggling on some other aspect like the 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 practices involved
1: well you just asked like the question (laughs) we're all trying to we're all trying to figure this out right now and um, that's actually where my head has been this whole school year. Each year, I try to focus on one big thing. Uh, this year, it's been assessment. And I'm just trying to figure out, get as many resources as I can, talk to as many people in our district and outside of district, attend um, you know, professional development to figure out different ways to assess. Um, for me, I mean, the science and engineering practices – we're practicing obviously in class, so mm-hmm. for a particular unit, um, I'll just talk about cell division, for example. Um, I had the students do the classic onion you know root tip mitosis lab, which I've been mm-hmm. doing for years. But what I did this year instead was we did a statistical analysis, we input a data into Google sheets, and I'm really trying we're We're fortunate enough that we're a one to one school, so each student has their own Chromebook, and mm-hmm. we're able to all the students have access to the whole suite of Google Drive. So they're inputting the data. We're, I'm t- trying to teach them um, every level. So honors biology, biology, IB biology, you know, the basic statistics, mean, standard deviation, etc. cetera. We analyze the data together. I'll have them individually write claim evidence, reasoning, type responses. I try to give them feedback. Now for the assessment, because if we're doing, for example, a group, maybe it's a group lab report, I'm not entirely sure if every student is understanding or able to do, I should say, the practice that was involved in that particular lab. So on the assessment, the individual assessment, I'll have some content style questions in there, but they will then have to take out a calculator and calculate the mean or analyze the bar graph, look at the the data, can they tell me through backing it up by evidence does there seem to be a significant difference, you know, between these two sets of data and how do they know that. And from there, I'm now able to assess the skill that they did within the lab. So I'm trying to make sure that within the assessments, the types of questions that I'm giving mirror the actual practices that we do in class so I give students that second chance to, to show their understanding and their ability. One thing that I've done, and i've um, this is one of the presentations I gave um at NABT, was how students can communicate their data um, when they do their own authentic research and um one is called the data blitz and this is a strategy I learned in my master's program um, at Washu and students in a group when they're doing an inquiry investigation they'll put all their data together in one slide it's essentially a poster presentation mm-hmm. from college and They get one slide to have their claim, any important data, a small section of reasoning. And then as a group, they get exactly 60 seconds to uh, present their data to the class. And they have to do so in a professional manner. And their level of speaking and um, just the vocabulary that they use is so much more advanced when they're given that time crunch of 60 seconds that they really produce an authentic product. But again, do I know exactly that all four students, by giving a 60-second presentation, understand the content or how to analyze this data? No, not necessarily. They, As a group, they did well. And I'll even give them coll- a collaboration rubric in order to grade each other on their participation in that. But do I know for sure that they have gotten the practice? Not necessarily. So that's why I um, designed the assessments to you know, test that particular skill from that lab or from that activity, so that I can individually assess them.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I've been I've been asking for self and peer evaluations on group stuff this year. Um, it's something I've been playing around with for years, but now I've gotten to the point where I pretty much am doing it. Like every single group assignment has something like that now, too, yeah. to definitely hit those points. I am just, I'm still, I, I love the idea of the nature of what you're doing and how you're seeing it. And I guess you don't, as you said, the, the assessments are rolling out right now. So mm-hmm. uh, time will tell how good a job the state assessment does at assessing the three dimensions. Yeah. And, Another
1: aspect too that's, it's interesting is this, um, because the NGSS has um, a third earth science and so mm. the models that all the schools have adopted have a lot of the earth science integrated within the curriculum, and so not only is it going to be interesting to see the assessment of the three dimensions of it, but also how students are performing with that earth science when a lot of them are in the traditional, you know, pathway of you know biology course, a chemistry course, and then maybe an advanced course or you know an anatomy phys course. Mm. So that's going to be interesting to see too.
0: Yeah, because they may or may not be really familiar with those DCIs. Yeah. So I I wonder, has there been any discussion about looking at standards-based type report cards where you you could parse them out? Or does it not make sense to have assessments that are for the separate areas? I guess that's sort of been my dilemma on trying to think about how to give feedbacks throughout the process. Should I be looking at Parsing out students' strengths and weaknesses by pulling them apart, or just making sure that I have rubrics that do hit all of the parts of the the three dimensions when I when I roll something out.
1: I've really been thinking a lot about standards-based grading. Can I? May I ask, do you do standards-based grading?
0: I do not. um yeah, and
1: do
0: I? I. <laughs> the way I sort of describe it is I've been I have been slowly building sort of a backdoor infrastructure to do it, uh, but I teach in a very traditional high school, and I actually feel like when I first became aware of the concept of standards-based grades, and I would have conversations both with colleagues and also with students about the concept of it, it came pretty clear to me that... Um, it was so radically different than the practice that I use and that my colleagues use that I definitely needed to learn more about it. And I needed exactly. to come up with a system that would work well for the population I have. Uh, I, do, I don't I do think a lot of my students, particularly my younger like freshmen and sophomores, would would know how to work in a standards-based system in the context of our school if only one of their classes was going in that direction. So I've had conversations with colleagues and other other people like that and I've built up my own capacity and understanding of standards based grades. Mm-hmm. But it's not something that I've been ready to pull the trigger on yet.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same boat because I, I, I really feel that there's a lot of value to that, especially if we are trying to assess, you know, or yeah, assess the progress of our students to be able to because they're not gonna be able to necessarily analyze data the first shot. You know, they mm-hmm. have to be able to get gather those skills. And there's been a lot of talk about it, not necessarily at our school, but in the IB curriculum, which I'm very new to IB, mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about standards-based grading too. So I see, I completely see the value of it and I'm 100% open to learning, but I need to know, I need to learn more about it. Like you said, to make that transition, um, to be able to yeah, to grade in that manner or assess students in that manner. In terms of how we are trying to assess, we're just coming up with um, department-wide rubrics, really, and within our common formative assessments. So, for example, we dissected the standards and we decided, and I heard, I learned this at a training, that the two most commonly assessed science and engineering practices on The um, within all the NGSS standards is writing an evidence-based claim and, uh, you know, an explanation and then also creating scientific models. So we've really been focusing on that this year in our department. And we went through the standards between chemistry, physics, and biology. And we picked out, each of us, um, a standard that was uh, claim evidence reasoning. And then we created a common assessment that within this, you know, subject-specific discipline we're able to come up with some sort of question for that and then we created a department-wide rubric that's general enough that can be used to assess each of those different um, questions and then we did the same thing with modeling so last semester we looked at modeling and we have a modeling rubric which Ron Michelotti um, he was he, he yeah devised that and we've used it all throughout um, our school and you know different districts too and it's been a great rubric And from there, we're now trying, we're, we're seeing that students are really good at drawing the components of models. They're fairly okay at, you know, answering a question with a model, but they're not making connections very well, you know, between the different components. And we saw that across the board between all of our different subjects. So we're, we're still really rusty with this because it's taking a lot of time to just assess all of these individual models and these mm-hmm. individual claim evidence reasoning. So we haven't figured it out yet, but we are getting data and we're understanding where the gaps are in our students' understanding and being able to um, do these different skills.
0: So when you say making connections within a model, what, what's an example of a connection that could be made that might not be being made?
1: Well, within the um, the rubric of the the modeling rubric, you know, you mm-hmm. have the different components of the model, the relationships between the components, and then the connections to scientific theory. Mm-hmm. Um, the students do a pretty good job with um, you know connections to theory, and they're good at giving the components. Because, for example, I just assessed them in our last unit on gene expression. Um, the phenomena for the unit was why I gave them pictures of different puppies from a litter. And, you know, why do these puppies have this color fur? And they had to draw an initial model. And then throughout the four or five weeks and all the different investigations, they were gathering more evidence. And then as a summative assessment in their groups, they had to create the same model again. And, you know, open notes, open whatever, they just have to create that model. And so I kind of give them the components, you know, the different parts of protein synthesis, gene expression, et cetera. And they're able to put those components in, but connecting I mean, here, here is an example, like they would draw just a double helix, like one particular gene, and then they would zoom in on a chromosome and then they would zoom in on the, the nucleus. So it was just all kind of like haphazard. And so mm-hmm. the, the relationships between the different components and then connecting it back to the color within the fur mm-hmm. of the dog wasn't necessarily always there. So they're, they're really good at drawing all the details and putting all those parts that they know that they learned. But sometimes they weren't able to, you know, have a nice flow between all the different relationships within the model. And, but I will say that because we've been working on this from the beginning of the school year, it's kind of cool when I say, okay, we're making a model, what are the parts? And they tell me, and then now we're getting to the part two of where they're discussing limitations of their model. And they know that, you know, scientific models are oversimplified. And so now they're drawing or writing that, I should say, on their models too how, what is the limitation of the model that they're creating?
0: That's great. You want to share with me that rubric? That, yeah, totally. That model rubric, so I can throw that in the show notes and more importantly, so I have it for myself. Um, yeah, so. no, it's
1: a, it's a great rubric. And uh, Ron and I both, we presented on it at the California steam symposium this last past fall. Mm-hmm. And um, it really, I think it, he did a great job um, making it very clear. And there's also a part within the rubric too, um, about model development for students to use too. So it has all the explanations of that. So we're trying hard um, here in our district to just, and within our department, like I said, to have common rubrics so that we are using, you know, the same language, because I think that's probably the hardest thing. And then I even talked to the students um, yesterday about CER. And I said your, you know, English teacher or your history teacher might not use this terminology, but what if we said back a claim with evidence and they all said, Oh yeah, we have to do that in all of our classes. Hmm. So that's just another part of these standards that I really like is it's just all about the skills. It's really authentic.
0: Yeah. I, I it's funny you bring up the CER because I we started using the C E R rubric a few years ago and we did, I think, sort of the classic teacher mistake of we adopted something that used different language, and rather than really understanding what the other language meant, we just sort of just like shoehorned it on top of our existing lab report process. Uh, yeah. Which, from talking to a lot of people, I don't think is uncommon. I think that's how most people tried CERs the first time, and then they were kind of a mess because we didn't like we were getting back these products, and we're like. I don't even know what I want out of this. Like, I'm using these words, and do I need, do I know what they mean? And uh, we've had a really nice evolution of getting to understand it from the teacher side. And then from that, making really good scaffolding for the students. And so when they're done well, they're just so good. Uh, Uh But it's, we're still in the middle of this journey because, again, we don't have that new assessment. But I've seen on the AP, the the command language that is used in in the questions. And I'm assuming okay. that that command language is going to come through on the whatever NGSS-like assessment we have, where they're going to have to make claims and they're going to have to use evidence uh, because that language, that command language is so important to communicating ideas in multiple dimensions of science.
1: No, absolutely. And when, um, in our one of our professional development days that we had recently at our school, we had to go through the, the CASP test, which is the <laughs> California language and math you know, component. That's the test that they're doing right now. But we went through it and did some practice questions. And one comment that me and my coworker who teaches IB biology with me said was wow i mean these kids really need to know that academic language Mm -hmm. um they might not know these particular terms that are so easy for us as educators to understand but we really need to uh, teach those command terms to them too just so that they understand what the question is asking
0: yeah i think that's going to be i feel like that's coming that that's going to be a collaborative interdisciplinary work that is going to come out soon um I've I've been having informal conversations with a handful of teachers around the building where I teach about this command language. And I feel like we've been grappling with the type of language or the type of work we want to do if we are to engage in interdisciplinary work. Um, but I do think that that academic language is probably something that's going to be the easiest for us to come around and discuss in terms of supporting students across the board.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So... All right. Well, you've mentioned IB a couple of times and I've mentioned AP a couple of times. Um, And I know that you taught AP biology in previous schools and you now teach IB. And really all I know about IB comes from the fact that Lee Ferguson teaches it Uh and Ryan Reardon teaches teaches it. Um, And other than the fact that those two teach it, and I talk to Ryan a lot, Ryan's enthusiastic about everything. Um, (laughs) It seems like, uh, it seems like, I, I have no idea what the difference is. So what has the shift been like for you uh, shifting yeah. from being AP to IB? And and what are, what are your experiences um, in that shift?
1: Yeah, I mean, prior to teaching IB, I taught AP biology for nine years and moved to Sonora High School where they have um, the IB program. So I teach the second year. So IB biology is two years. So I guess that would be the biggest change is that there's just a lot more to teach mm-hmm. to where it has to be within, at least at our school, in two years. And, you know, I went to some trainings on IB and I mean, the name itself is, I think, one of the biggest difference, the international baccalaureate. So there's this concept of, you know, international mindedness. And I I see more connectivity between the different IB courses. So instead of it just being IB biology, you know, we're, we're teaching the same types of skills between the different IB courses in light of, you know, kind of an international lens but also the the class that they have to take in order to receive their diploma called theory of knowledge is a really a great class cuz it's really teaching students to question their thinking why do we know what we know and that is very helpful also you know obviously within a science course in terms of the content it's i mean AP IB it's it's biology so i feel like i'm teaching the same thing the standards themselves in the IB curriculum there are definitely more there are some there's a lot more details, I would mm-hmm. say, in the IB curriculum, and and it makes sense because we get more time to teach it, and so they're very the the curriculum is scripted in terms of some of the very particular skills and understandings that these students need to know. A great example to compare the two is, you know, in the past with AP Biology, we had to teach um, more of the taxonomy, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was, you know, gone with the the redesign. And in IB Biology, it's kind of it's, it's the same thing. So they have to know the taxonomy and classification of the plants. Um, we're working on that right now with evolution, the animals, um, the vertebrates. They have to know. Um, there's also a part of the curriculum called the options, and so there are, I believe, four options where they uh, we get to choose of which option they do. So. And I can't remember all the options, but there's ecology, there's biotechnology, there's neuroscience, and I think the last one is um, physiology. That might be them, the four. So our school, we we chose ecology, and we spend over a month even in more depth ecology. Mm -hmm. And then on the assessment, the IB biology test is very different than the AP biology test in that it's a two-day test first. There's three papers. And then something called the internal assessment. And mm-hmm. the internal assessment, the IA, is probably the most authentic form of assessment I've seen because the students uh, create their own research question. It's their own open-ended inquiry where they create their own research question. I'm their advisor, and I have to guide mm-hmm. them through the process of developing their own research, coming up you know, with a correct protocol that's, of course, safe and within the parameters of what we can do in a high school biology lab. They conduct their research, they gather their data, they write an evaluation, and then as the teachers, we have to then read through the IAs, the internal assessment, and grade them, and then we get moderated on our grading. So that would probably be the biggest difference, um, I would say, between IB and AP is the assessment. So in IB, there's paper one, which is 40 multiple choice questions, and that's Mm -hmm. about 20, I think 20% of the, the test grade. Then there's paper two, which is all free response questions, and it's data analysis type questions, there's extended responses, there's short answer questions, and this is based on all of the curriculum. And then the next day is paper three, and paper three is, again, all free response data, database type questions from the curriculum, but then the students get to choose their options. So our students would choose ecology, and then there's an extensive number of questions about Ecology that they would then answer, and then the internal assessment, their own rep- lab report, I guess you would call it, is also worth twenty percent of the test grade. So it's it's truly an assessment that has both the practical aspect, it's the practical work, which is the lab mm-hmm. component, and then the writing component, and then the multiple choice too.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's it's it's a it is a lot. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a lot. Um, it-
0: and you said you went to training. So I imagine a, a fair amount of that training would be very much geared towards the internal assessment component.
1: Yeah. And that was the first, um, this is only my third year teaching IB. And so this is my third round of IAs. In fact, I have a few to grade this weekend because scores are due next week. But um, <laughs> that was probably the most nerve wracking part of the process for me um, that first year because, I mean, I've had students write lab reports and design their own research questions for years in AP mm-hmm. bio. but I've never been graded on my grading before, yeah. so I I, mean, and that part, it was nerve-wracking the first time, but now it's kind of, and I was talking to our IB history teacher about this, she's like, it's kind of cool. It's like, yes, I was right on, or okay, I graded too easy, or I graded too hard, and it's kind of nice to be graded on your assessment and your ability to assess students also, and I mean, it's definitely, um, it takes time, and there's parts of the internal assessment. I mean, you're going to have your students that are just those go-getters that come up with these awesome research questions, like how would you even come up with that? And they get this data, and it's, you know, so exciting for them when everything works out. And then, of course, you're going to have your students that aren't as, you know, motivated to maybe go through the process um, on time. So I start my students back in, like, October, November, and they just turned them in a few weeks ago. So it's definitely a long process, and they have all the supports along the way. But yeah, the training was definitely geared towards the IA and yeah, just how the assessment works in general.
0: Yeah. And I I, I can think of sort of mini parallels that I see, whether it's, you know, my my son goes to a school where if you're an honors student, you have to do an honors year-long research project with different components that they check in. And it's similar. It's a sort of a baby version of what you're, you're yeah. talking about here because, um, well, it has a lot of the same components that you're you're bringing up, like they have to come up with their own question and design their own lab and implement the lab and then then do the ra- write-up. Um, and I do group projects with my students that are similar, that again, they're group-oriented and their final product is more of a trifold, like a little science fair, more science fair-like uh-huh. than an actual report. So I do parts of that, but you're right. I think the, the scale and scope and then the Idea that you're going to get confirmation for the student from another set of eyes outside yeah. uh, is is interesting. Um, I, I can imagine it's similar to when I go and grade the grade APs. Uh-huh. It made me a lot more confident. You know, this year scoring open response questions FRQs on the test than I was before. I felt I feel like I have a degree of of confidence and understanding of breaking down the rubric this year that I never had before.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it gives you that confidence to, yeah, to be able to direct your students even better in their in their progression of their understanding as well. And yeah, like, like you said, use a rubric. And the internal assessment rubric, I remember the first time looking at it, just being so confused by it. <laughs> there's just, there's different components of it, obviously. And it's just, yeah, I was so overwhelmed. So that first year grading the IAs, it took me forever. And I, I'm seeing that each year this now be my third time doing it is, yeah, it's becoming easier just like with anything. So, but it, you know, with the, going back to the question about AP to IB, um, I still get to do all the same labs, all my favorite things. So I'm part of the Amgen biotech experience. And I've mm-hmm. been with that program for forever, at least, I don't know, nine years now or so. And so we just finished our whole biotech series of labs with them. So I still get to do that. I still, um, my coworker, um, she teaches the first year of IB biology, which is still AP biology. So we still do, you know, the same AP labs that we've all done forever. And so in that sense, I feel very much like I'm still in my AP world,
0: Mm AP
1: slash IB, you know, world It's just the way I just have to add more content here and there and bring, like I said, that international component. And then, uh, you know, the assessment at the end is obviously a different
0: yeah. I forget that you're in an ABE area too. Cause I I'm, I'm in Amgen world as well um, with but Harvard. Is, Harvard is mine. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was at a conference and somebody was like talking about all of the, the transformation stuff and they're like, yeah. Oh yeah. And you just get this kit and you get this kit and you get this kit. And I'm like, yeah. Or I just, have you know we have alia at harvard and i'm like or just alia will just make all my plates for me and i, I can know. just drive in and pick up my plasmids um <laughs> and i don't yeah, have to it's... order i don't have to order kits from anybody i just go and dr- drive in and pick know, them up
1: i know it's amazing and i don't have you done the pcr
0: uh so we did the ptc the ptc pcr
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah we did that this year um, and we actually piloted the sending off for sequencing oh cool uh, so we sent them off for, we sent our DNA off for sequence. We were one of the first schools that got to do it. Yeah, I just heard about that. There. That's awesome. Yeah. We
1: did the colony PCR and we got to use, um, each lab station had their own mini one PCR thermocyclers. Yeah. And it just amazes me, yeah, that you can just, we borrow it and we're able to use it and the kids got great results. And it was, yeah, super exciting. I love it.
0: Yeah, I want to say we got like about, we only had like five or six kids not get sequenceable data enough to figure out their genotype um, wow, out, of eight, out of 80 students. Yeah. I mean, compared to other DNA based stuff that I've done, um, we tried the mitochondrial DNA a few years ago and we just, I think we were a little behind, not quite ready. We were, we were stretching out and we just didn't get very good data at all. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think the PTC um, sequencing is going to be like, a it's going to be a cornerstone to what we do next year. We're going to build like a whole, we're going to build a whole module around it. Um, awesome! because it was great to go from, um, you know, phenotype to genotype to do Hardy Weinberg, to do like tie in so many different components all the way out to sequencing was, was amazing.
1: It could be a phenomenon for like your whole school year and do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, went early in my career, which also I think helped me, obviously I love biology and I love teaching, but really got me into loving, um, the biotech more is I, participated in an HHMI summer scholars program where I was able to work in a lab Mm -hmm. for, I think it was four or five weeks with two students. And so we worked in a stem cell lab and that's really where I, you know, fine tuned the skills like PCR, you know, transformation, isolation, genes, et cetera. And, And then being on top of that learning within the Amgen biotech experience, it's, so great to be able to bring that to your students and I think back you know when I was in high school and just the opportunities that our kids have now and (laughs) being exposed to all of this and you know they're going off and doing research and it's just it's just so great for them to be able to expose so yet to be able to be exposed so young with something that's just so instrumental in our scientific understanding
0: yeah and and similar to where you are I mean i'm in a location where um i I was uh texting with one of my students uh this morning because there's actually a problem with the uh the t in boston where some of the lines were shut down but i send my students out on job shadows and i had a group going in here on a saturday morning uh to go into one of the hospitals to go to one of their medical technologists labs to do a job shadow and learn about what it's like to work as a medical technologist Um, so i was helping them problem solve not anything about biology, but like, how do you get from yeah. this place to this place when part of the T is closed? Um, but we were able to figure it out and, and work that out. But yeah, similar to being where you are, we have great resources uh, around us where there's a lot of biotech around and, um, and it takes a little bit of work to open up those yes. doors and make the connections. But once you do, you can provide students with some amazing opportunities to really pursue and, and sort of try on what is it like to be involved in this area of biology? What kind of person will I be after I graduate high school?
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're um, able to yeah, investigate so many career
0: opportunities potentially, yeah. which is great. It's pretty exciting. All right, so we've talked a lot about some of the stuff we've been doing um and I I could imagine you have a lot of different answers, but what in what are you excited about um in the years to come? What are you looking forward to in your classroom in the next few years?
1: You know, one one thing that I think will be very interesting to see maybe within the next 5 years or so is kind of going back to NGSS. Um, seeing this maybe, I guess you would call it a new wave of students who have experienced the California NGSS starting in elementary school. So right now, our students haven't really grown up with these standards that we're getting at the high school level. And so this is a very new way, so to say, for them to to think, even though it's just scientific thinking. And I think that a lot of them are a little bit afraid. Like, for example, my my honors biology students at the beginning of the year, you know, I pose a question and they get really frustrated with me that I don't give them an answer. And they get frustrated with themselves that they get a, they get things wrong, you know, because they just want me to get the right answer and that type of thinking I think has just been so ingrained within them and they just want the answer, they want the grade. And I keep trying to tell them this is not science. This is not how life works. You have to ask questions and you have to be willing to want to you know, I wouldn't even call them errors, just redo, revise, re-explain. And they're not used to that at the beginning of the year. At this point, you know, at the end of the year, they know I'm going to ask them a phenomenon. I'm going to show them a phenomena, or ask them a question, and they know that they're not going to get the answer right away. And so the frustration's kind of gone because they just kind of know that routine. I think it will be really interesting in the next, like I said, five years to see if these students coming up to the high school level um, – are more willing to think that way or are used to thinking that way with the implementation of, you know, these cross-cutting concepts and these science and engineering practices. So I'm really excited about that um, because I think, you know, it's just going to, my teaching has already changed so much because Mm -hmm. of these standards, but then to be able to um, have students who are already used to them and really be able just to continue to mold them and help them, um, it will just be, really exciting. I'm looking forward to mentoring more teachers also, more teaching candidates. This is a new thing for me. I'm teaching in the secondary teaching program Mm -hmm. at Cal State Fullerton, and I'm I'm really loving it. And it's been fun, um, you know, showing these people. It's just, I get to talk about teaching, and it's it's such a passion and joy of mine, and being able to help students, and being able to um, spread that hopeful enthusiasm, you know, to these other I guess we'd call them like baby teachers, you know, <laughs> teachers who are just, just starting to get their, you know, dip their toes into this whole world is also really exciting. And I'm learning so much through that too, even more about NGSS and how to unpack the standards and realizing that all the work that I think all of us do, you know, through the nation and teaching biology really does align to the NGSS. I think a lot of teachers may think that this is a kind of like crazy radical new, you know, way. And it's, it's not, and we already do this. You just have to mm-hmm. kind of align the standards to that. So I'm looking forward to on the teaching end of it, being able to learn more about that and being able to work with more teachers. Um, in terms of the classroom, I'm always looking for more professional development opportunities. Like I said, I was able to years ago, work um, in that lab through the I Scholars Program and anything like that where I can get real experience to be able to bring to my students. um, Always look forward to those types of experiences because, I mean, we're in this to help kids. And the more that I can learn to be able to give back to these kids just makes me excited. And I guess I'm just Looking forward to also having uh, materials that are aligned aligned to the standards. Also,
0: <laughs> here not, in California, not, not being a black so, box. <laughs>
1: yeah, so maybe we have a little bit more direction of you know not having to create everything from scratch too. Which, like for me, I think that's kind of fun because I love creating, um, but it's 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 tiring too to create everything, um, you yeah. know, these assessments from scratch. And so just learning more and being trained more too.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting dilemma that I, I love the curriculum creation, but it it's so time consuming. And yeah, in the balance of I, I personally feel like the feedback to content creation, it's been a, I think that's been a hard thing for me to balance, because if you're investing massive amounts of time in creating things, you're not able to you're spending time that is time that you're not providing as much feedback to students. Uh Um, And that's so important. I feel like this year I've actually sort of dialed back a little bit of content creation that compared to say last year where I was building a lot of content um, as we were flipping our honors bio class and making a lot of videos and doing that sort of thing. And this year we have a lot of those, those things in place. And I've been seeing how much more feedback I can give to students on their work as they go. And I realized sort of that that is the balancing act that you have to do every year between those two very time intensive components of our job.
1: I, I agree. I was just talking to one of my coworkers. I'm like, it would be so awesome if we could just have a year sabbatical to be able to create all this <laughs> content and then, yeah, be able to teach because doing both is so hard. And like you said, feedback, that's something I've been focusing on too. And I'm really seeing, I mean, Obviously that's important to for us to give feedback to students and I'm trying hard just to give them a lot of verbal feedback, but also like I said, we're with our Chromebooks, I'm able to give them, you know, commentary real quick through Google. Um, anything to give them feedback or peer review feedback. But yeah, it takes so much time and there's just not enough time to be able to create and give feedback and grade and prep for your preps and mm-hmm. you know, and have you know, a home life and everything else as well. <laughs>
0: All right. So that's the natural transition for my, my next question. Uh, Um, when you're not teaching uh, Um, and you're not giving feedback and you're not creating content, content. uh, uh, what do you like to do?
1: I, gosh, I have so many hobbies. I love the outdoors probably obviously for all of us biology teachers. Um, so I'm out hiking as much as I can, um, exploring. I was just in Joshua tree national park last week. Um, uh, Yeah, hiking, going to the beach. I'm a runner, although right now I'm on a a break from running because my foot is injured. But Mm. running, just being outdoors, gardening. I love to cook. Music is a big passion of mine. So going to concerts, listening to music. Yeah, uh, that would probably be what I do outside of school.
0: Yeah, and just enjoying your Southern California life.
1: Yes, it is. It is very nice here. So (laughs) we're able, yeah, able to do a lot of outdoor activity here.
0: Yeah, we're we're in mud season here in Massachusetts, um, as we refer to it. Mud um, season. <laughs> yeah, when everything melts. Um, like, like everything is melted. So you step in the yard and you scoosh down into mud. Um, so it's also, this is the time where people, a lot of times people make maple syrup this time of year because that's when the trees are doing it. But, um, I have a friend who's from Maine who says, yeah, maple syrup season is your excuse to ignore the fact that it's the bugs are about to come out and your entire yard is a mud patch. Um, so. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um,
1: So when will all the flowers and everything start blooming? Is that soon?
0: Uh, it's starting to roll out. Yeah. I mean, we're starting. So like actually last night I stepped out on the back deck and we heard um, the croakers, our first frogs in the vernal pools were coming uh-huh. out. The peepers will probably be out later this week. Um, those are like our first sort of signs of spring that we have. And we have some flowers that will be starting to poke through. Uh, you know, they'll be rolling over in the next month and a half. Um, I'm at a little elevation as well. Um not like, you know, Sierra Nevada's type elevation, but uh, mm-hmm. more like a bump, you know, Appalachian style uh, bumps that we get in the middle of Massachusetts. Uh, but we, we're we usually like a week or two behind a lot of the other uh, normal signs of spring that pop out. Um, I was actually running last weekend and I ran in, I went out on a run and I sh- cut it short so that I could cut through into a lot of my trails just to just check them out and see like, what are the trailheads like? And there's still ice, um, like uh. patches of ice over trails Um, in a couple of them. Some of them were still runnable, but like literally it was big ice patch in some. And then some of them, it was like, looked like a pond because, you know, the water's all melted and, you know, sunk in, but uh, it was still fun to go in and check it out. We'll probably be, the trails will probably be runnable in about a week or two, usually end of April, beginning of May. Uh, May and June are great months around here to run trails. So that's like one of my favorite, my favorite times of the year is I I think um, most June, most days in June that I'm here, I run, I run trails almost every day, um, that I run. So
1: it's such a good, yeah. Relaxing thing to do. It just, yeah. I just feel energized afterwards. We're having a huge super bloom here because uh-huh. we had so much rain, um, this fall. And I think I just heard on the news that we're officially out of the drought here in California. Wow. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of snow, but yeah, talking about trails, we hiked Mount Whitney a few years ago in, um, august and there was so much snow that the trail there were really no trails like our trails were streams and we were just walking and running through (laughs) streams with all that snow melt so yeah that's great that you can hike and start running through all those trails
0: yeah yeah. I'm looking forward to it. That's, that's usually, usually end of April. Is perfect. Uh, it's perfect. It's perfect time to start getting there, but I'll come home. There's many days while I'll come home and I will be very covered in mud. Um, this time of <laughs> year when, I, when Like I come the mud run. run. <laughs> yeah. They pretty much. All, I have a, a stack of running shoes that basically I wait until they've only got like a week or two left in them. And I make a pile of those because I know that come spring, I'll want to be rotating through those because they'll be wet and muddy for, for quite some time.
1: So. <sighs> yeah. That's smart.
0: All right. So, uh, before we get to fix the episode, do you have any questions for me?
1: You know, I was just, you actually pretty much answered them. Cause I was curious. I mean, I'm, we're so involved in the standards here in California. I was wondering where you are in Massachusetts in terms of adopting, mm-hmm. um, NGSS, but you pretty much touched on that earlier. Um, and where you are in your assessments. Yeah.
0: yeah I mean, I mean the, yeah, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the best way of saying it is that like we are, coming to grips with the fact that we need to change, um, slowly. (laughs) That's sort of where we are. So.
1: Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think that's in a lot of States and, um, yeah, we're just trying, trying our best out here in California. And I feel like we've been part of this for so long. I mean, the first, we went to, they're called the rollouts and the first Mm -hmm. rollout, I feel like was, I don't know, five years ago. Yeah. So it's crazy to me that this started, that long ago and it's like this is our first year of you know the testing with it and there's still so much to learn which yeah. is exciting for me. I love that. So
0: I feel like when I was at NSTA in LA what was that 2 years ago mm-hmm. and I remember going to the the meeting where they were showing like the pilot testing for California. I remember going to that and we had just as I said we were just getting ready to roll out the the mass standards. I think they had a, just put out the draft standards at that point for Massachusetts for like review. And just feeling like, oh, wow, they're like so much more ahead. But now as we're talking, it sounds like we're like a year behind, maybe two years behind. It's, it, it feels like we're, we're starting, we're, we're catching up, um, mm-hmm. but probably in much due to the leadership of, of states like California and a couple others who are mm-hmm. out, out leading the way of creating resources and having those conversations. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, like I said, it's just, I just think it's, it's good teaching yeah, phenomena based student centered teaching is just great teaching. So it's been so much more fun for me to have these standards and to teach this way. I love it.
0: All right. Uh, so let's get to picks of the episode and right on brand. Um, I'm going to have you go first, Amy, what is your pick of the episode?
1: Um, I am linking a website, which, um, Many people probably know about, but I've really loved using it. It's the NGSS Hub from NSTA. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a great website where, if especially for me when I first saw the standards, and I was very overwhelmed with how the performance expectations aligned with the different DCI, CCCs, and SCPs. if you click on a particular performance expectation on this website, it highlights in particular within the three dimensions where that particular performance expectation Lies, So you can really see clearly. And then there's a lot of resources too within that performance expectation that have been uh, reviewed, peer reviewed, and teachers have uploaded. So different lab activities, phenomena based activities, modeling activities, etc. And like you said earlier, I can link that modeling rubric too that we were talking about also.
0: Yeah, I'd love to see. I'd love to see the rubric um, in here. And if people haven't been to um, this in a while, which I will be honest, I have, I've been to this, but I have not been in a few years. It has, it has definitely changed. And yeah. It's great. Yeah. There's a lot more stuff in here that was not here a few years ago. So mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, I was, I was actually amazed to see that too because I have probably haven't looked at it in a while either. And then recently with um, the teaching program, um, I sh- we shared it with our teaching teacher candidates, and I was looking at it, and I yeah, it's definitely evolved a lot, and it's, it's a great source of information.
0: Oh yeah, to it's, help a, us. it's a ton of stuff in here now. I just yeah. I just went into the filtering of the classroom resources for nine through twelve, just within one of the domains, and there's a ton of stuff in here. So, mm-hmm. um, if you're building your own storylines or you're building your own curriculum, there's a lot of great resources in here. So
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, well, my pick is actually sort of almost like scaling up. And I bet you, you could use this for NGSS if you wanted, but I'm gonna pass on somebody else's storyline uh, that they shared with me. Um, so this is Bob Kuhn out of Georgia, and Bob uh, put together this this beta cell phenomena for biology, and I used it with my AP classes just the last few weeks. And basically, it's an NGSS storyline similar to you know your Jason Crean NGSS storylines, but it's very much geared towards you know honors slash AP level students uh, to work through. Beta cells as a phenomena to unpack. Um, I used it to unpack a lot of uh, the AP standards as it applies to both uh, protein modeling and signal transduction, um, along with some other components as well. And I, it just—it's such a beautiful storyline that applies to AP. And there's so few of those. And this is the way I want to teach my AP classes is through a storylining module. And it's as I, I co-teach with another, or it's me and one other AP teacher in my building, and we co-planned together our curriculum. And we got done doing this and we're like, this is what we've been trying to do all year. Um, and more or less all we did was use this. We started with a, a long reading. We had the students sort of generate their own questions about it. We had some discussions. There's a case study. And it just, it was such an elegantly put together storyline that um, I just, Wanted to share it out for everyone. So if you're thinking about trying to do something that's storyline based, that's in the AP realm, beta cell phenomenon by Bob Kuhn is the, the the way to go.
1: Yeah. Wow. I'm looking at this right now, and this is incredible. Yeah. You can even use this parts of this. Yeah, like for a review for the AP test. Yeah. Or IB test too.
0: Yeah, and my kids loved it. The 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 feedback from the kids was amazing and um and as I was just from a teacher standpoint, it literally is the thing I've been trying to do all year is to create a story for my students so that we're not we're not presenting content, we're presenting science and using that science as a a platform For them to then explore and ask questions and engage in practices. And I thought the storyline was brilliant. It also has a really nice tie-in with one of John Darko's models about beta cells. And there's a great, some great audio that goes along with it. So it's it's a really great resource. And um, the number of questions that kids, I had kids who were telling me that they thought like, you know, misconceptions about diabetes. Like a lot of students thought that like, type one diabetes is when you had like not enough insulin, but like type two is when you had too much. And uh-huh. like, they just, it was really interesting to hear them. The way that this is presented, it really allowed them to unpack their their preconceptions in a way that is mm-hmm. like something that I always want my kids to do. And it, I really was able to see them do it while working through this. There were days where like, I was going to start to go over questions and they were like, no, no, you have to answer this question now. No, no, we need to know this information. And um, they were, they were heavily, heavily invested uh, in the whole story. Uh, it's super captivating. And, um, yeah, I I think anybody who struggles to try to make things like cell communication, um, or protein structure and function and make it relatable. This was just such a great resource to do that.
1: Yeah. This is, this is really incredible. Um, yeah. And there's a data analysis and everything within this.
0: It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I'm, my hope is to have like, Eight things that look like this from next year. So um, I just need Bob to get working. And um, <laughs> you know, no, but in in all honesty, I, this is a uh, a model that I'm going to be using when I work to build some curriculum for next year on a couple of other uh, storylines that I I feel like I struggled through this year. But this has given me a roadmap of of ways to do this.
1: Absolutely, yeah, no, and that that to me that's also like we were saying before, such the fun part too of teaching is being able to create. It's such teaching is such a creative process. Mm-hmm and such a like obviously a rewarding process too and being able to help so many people and yeah the creativity aspect of it is one of my favorite parts and then also learning more science through all of it i (laughs) mean i can imagine building something like this the amount of content and understanding that you learn as well
0: yeah absolutely yeah all right well amy thank you so much for joining me this has been a great conversation i feel like i I learned so much uh and inspired me to Dive deep into some of these more uh, n g s s phenomena and and think about that as i I build some of more curriculum
1: yeah we're all in this all in this together in this yeah. journey're
0: right, <laughs> learning let me my- from each other. Let me give my show notes, uh, show credits rather. Um, so please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, you should be able to find it on any podcast player that you want to use. Patreons can go to patreon.com slash lots. Um, and if you are a Patreon, I do early release my audio out a few days earlier. I've been getting them about, about four or five days early. Uh, you get a special early release of the audio. You also can get show notes there when I put out show notes for everybody. Music on this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and Ex-Magicians. Show notes are also available on lifeoftheschool.org. You can follow me on twitter at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school uh amy i couldn't find you on twitter so if you are you're hidden
1: yeah i'm not on twitter apparently i need to start tweeting
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, sometimes yeah sometimes no it's <laughs> it's it's you know there are there are huge advantages i'm not shilling for twitter but be it's a good place for people to find me if they want yeah to i've you. heard
1: that maybe maybe i will start tweeting you've inspired yeah. me to tweet <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right well thanks for joining me everybody and i will talk to everybody soon